the Young and Healthy Podcast. You're listening to the Cincinnati Children's Young and Healthy Podcast. Welcome to the Young and Healthy Podcast. I'm Kate Sutter, your host for today. This is season two, episode two of Young and Healthy, and um, just for posterity's sake, we're also recording it on 2-2-2022, so that's a whole lot of twos, and I have two familiar guests. I know, right? I just, I can't help myself. I have two familiar guests um, in the studio today, uh, Dr. Patty Manning, our chief of staff, and Dr. Bob Frank, our vaccine researcher, expert extraordinaire, are both here. That's going to be your official title from now on. Um, Are here to provide us with a COVID update. And I thank you both for your time and for being here today. Thank you for having us. You're welcome. Um, So let's just jump right in because it's kind of a wild day here. We have impending uh, winter weather here in the Cincinnati area, and it's kind of got all of us on our toes. So let's just go ahead and get started. And would could we start with kind of an update on what's going on with COVID in the community? What are we What are we seeing? Well, fortunately, we're seeing some glimmers of hope and, and, and improvement. We're definitely seeing rates of cases, rates of hospitalized individuals um, coming down. I would say they're coming down somewhat slowly. We're following what we saw happen in Cleveland a couple weeks ago, which was a a fairly precipitous decline in cases and hospitalizations, and we're seeing that in kids as well. So that's all really encouraging and um, what we all want to hear and see. At the same time, and this is always kind of the other side of the coin, right, Um, it's still really high levels of disease in in the region. And so when when there's improvement, it's important to contextualize that and remember Mm -hmm. that it's still still much higher than we want to be and still uh, warrants that we practice good, safe practices. And, and so one of the things, Kate, maybe a good time to just try to interject one thing is that what Dr. Manning was saying as far as with disease, and, and we are seeing disease, but I think also it's important for people to be able to separate the difference between infection and disease because this is one of the things where a lot of people have been getting nervous is why do I bother getting vaccinated because I'm still getting infected. And so Infection just means that I, if I do a swab on you, I find that you have COVID. Um, but disease means you have symptoms with it. And then the spectrum of disease can go from nothing, very mild, to death. So a huge spectrum of illness. But what we're seeing is that in the unvaccinated compared to the vaccinated, the rate of death is like 20 times. Um, the hospitalization is like 14 times higher in the unvaccinated compared to vaccinated. So while we are definitely seeing infections in people that have been vaccinated. The serious illnesses are overwhelmingly in the unvaccinated people. And so that was an incredibly important point. Thank you for that. And I know that that disease and infection, the the difference between the two, um, you've told us before, but we, we need the reminder because I think people get confused. So what are we seeing as far as disease in children with the most recent um, Omicron variant? So similar to adults, um, because more people and more children, including children, have had Omicron, um, more 
children are getting very sick with Omicron. So our numbers of hospitalized children went up really steeply in about the, the last week in December, like dramatically doubled, tripled, quadrupled, you know, up five times higher than our peak ever was at any other point in the pandemic. Um, granted, some of these children were incidentally positive with COVID and, and hospitalized for other reasons, but many of them were sick with COVID, with pneumonia, um, with respiratory symptoms, sometimes with uh, COVID plus croup or COVID plus an asthma exacerbation. Um, and and uh, it's hard to say that Omicron made them sicker. It's not that Omicron was more um, serious in terms of the type of disease that it causes. It's just that it was so infectious that so many more children got it mm -hmm. that some, a percentage of those children were going to get very ill. Right. I mean, I, I think that's an important point that Dr. Manning's making as far as if you look at rate of infection, that means the percentage of people that are hospitalized. So if you have 100 people infected and one is hospitalized, your hospitalization rate is 1%. So that the rate of hospitalization didn't really increase that much with uh, Omicron. But what happened is that the number of people increased so much. So now if you still have a 1% infection rate, but you go from 100 people to 1,000 people, you're going to have 10 people hospitalized. When you go to 10,000, you're going to have 100 people hospitalized. So when that number increases, even though if the rate stays the same, the absolute number of people that are hospitalized or having very severe illness is going to increase, even if your percentage is staying the same. And that's a really excellent illustration because we saw that exactly in our um, positive outpatient numbers of, of children testing positive for COVID. We went from a couple hundred, maybe two or 300 a week, to 2,000 a week. Mm -hmm. And so the same percentage of 2,000 was going to land in the hospital. It was going to be a much higher number of children. Right. So let's talk about number of children in our area who are vaccinated because um, we are just talking about the fact that, it, you know, less severe disease with the vaccination. How are we doing on, on rates in our area? So it's interesting as far as that when we started with COVID and the vaccine trials, we were being very, very emphatic because we wanted to have a very diverse population and that we worked very hard to get a population where um, we have representation in the community that was very representative in our clinical trials because we were concerned that we were gonna have maybe less people of black and brown uh, backgrounds that were getting vaccinated. What we're actually finding now is that across the um, ages, if you look at people 50 to 60 or 60 to 70, whatever, there's not a racial dis uh, disparity anymore. Uh, black, brown, white are basically all immunized at the same rate. What we're seeing now though, is that as we decrease in age, mm -hmm. that's where the disparity is, is that compared to people 60 and above, we're probably at 75, 80% of people being vaccinated. We're down to the, the 12 to 17. We're just a little over 50%. When we're going down to five to 11, the last I checked, we were at 18% in, in Ohio. So that's where our disparity is if you compare the younger age group to the older age group. But racially, we pretty much have equilibrated, which is good. I would just add that there, in addition to that disparity um, that Dr. Frank is describing, we're also seeing really significant variation across the counties in our region. So we've got counties um, that might be considered more rural where the vaccination rates for uh, five to 11 year olds are in the single digits, uh, but they're you know well into the double digits for the more urban counties. And, and that goes for the 12 to 17 year old age group as well. So um, some counties you know, really have much higher rates of vaccination yes. than others. Are there percentages that we're kind of aiming for 
Like if we reach a certain percentage, does that, I know that we've talked about um, community immunity, herd immunity. Um, I've also understood that the vaccination rate has something to, um, like influences the ability for the virus to mutate as well. Am I getting that correct? Yeah, so that, so that uh, disentangling your questions there as far as that, so for the, um, so you're saying for a herd immunity is kind of think what kind of percentage do we need? So historically, we said for most vaccines, we like to see at least an 80% rate. Um, that's what the CDC targets for almost all our vaccines. Higher, the better. I mean, if we could get 100, that'd be wonderful. But um, really, the 80 is usually the mark that we go for most vaccines. Um, COVID, it may need to be a little bit higher, but somewhere in that range um, would be what uh, typically we would like to, to see. Okay. And... So what about boosters? So I know that we said that we're, we're kind of lagging behind in the 5 to 11s, but um, boosters were recently approved for the 12 to 17s. Have we seen some uptake in boosters in that age group? Probably not as much as we would like. We've seen some, and, and as I'm looking at percentages here across our region, we've got about 10% of our 12 to 17-year-olds across our entire Southwest Ohio region who've gotten their booster. So that's, you know, that could be a lot better. I know it's hard. Um, some folks, especially in that age range, feel pretty invincible, um, but we know how protective the booster can be. Yeah. I mean, that's one of the things is that if you look at no vaccine versus the full dose, the two doses of vaccine, you get a huge, that's where you're getting a huge jump. But we still see a significant jump going from that full vaccine series to the vaccine series plus a booster. Um, so we really would encourage people, even if they've had COVID, um, to please go get that booster, is that unfortunately, this virus does not prevent, uh, give us long-lasting immunity. A lot of times you get, a, so you get measles. You're never gonna get measles again if you had it. If you have mm -hmm. chicken pox, you're not gonna get chicken. Oh, some people say, well, I got chicken pox twice. Most people are not gonna get chicken pox <laughs> twice. Um, so with many infections, you don't get them again. COVID's not one of those and that it does not give you a lasting immunity and the vaccines actually provide a better immunity than the natural infection. So what about for these kiddos who are under five who are not yet eligible? Um, there was some big news that um, we saw a little bit about last night, but you said there was just today um, news related to Pfizer and um, requesting an EUA. Will you tell us what's going on with that? Sure, so the emergency use authorization is what um, the FDA is allowed to have people get a vaccine before it's fully approved. And that's based on having enough s safety data and then the, the immune response. Um, and so that's how they went with adults, then the adolescents, then the younger ki older kids and the younger kids. And now we're at five and above, it has an emergency use authorization. Um, so that the FDA um, asked Pfizer yesterday to submit their data to have what they're calling a a rolling EUA so that uh, to be having this um, vaccine available as you've um, got into the age group from down as low as six months of age. Uh, and so that uh, the, the advisory group for the FDA is called VRBAC, uh, will be meeting in a couple weeks to review the data. Uh, but it, it sounds like it's likely that a vaccine will be available for six months of age and above. Um, most likely, for the six months of age and above, it's gonna be a three-dose vaccine series, though, um, and that what they're gonna be doing is reviewing the data for the two doses, because we don't have full data for three doses yet. Um, but it was thought that there's enough disease, infection and disease, in the, in the younger children to uh, warrant uh, having the vaccine available now. 
And I know that when we went from 12 to 17 to the 5 to 11, there was um, a pediatric dose right. that was introduced. Will this youngest subset also yes. be their own specialized dose? Yes. So that right now, as far as from 12 and above, it's 30 micrograms for the Pfizer. For the Moderna, um, it's uh, 100 micrograms for the adults. And that uh, for the adolescents, they're still reviewing the data from Moderna. Um, for Pfizer, for the uh, 5 to 11, it's 10 micrograms. And then under 5, it would be 3 micrograms. Okay. So I've... I've had personal questions. I, I think that you know we've been doing this long enough that word is out that I have access to you two and good information. So I love when people actually ask me what um, what we're doing in our family with our kids. And I have an under five year old kiddo at home, and I'm telling everybody as soon as it's available, we'll be in line to get his vaccine. But there are a lot of families that aren't quite that confident yet. And I, um, I'm i not sure I fully understand the hesitation, but would love to just ask you if that question was posed to the two of you, how would you answer? Well, if a family asked me if they should vaccinate uh, their six-month-old to five-year-old, I would say absolutely, definitely yes. And, um, and I would do my best to reassure uh, families about the safety, the efficacy. It's, it's hard though. I mean, we're really living in a world where there is more uh, concern and unfortunately misinformation, I think, about vaccines. And yet in pediatrics, we've been vaccinating babies uh, for you know decades and decades to keep them safe. But there's something about this vaccine and, and it's um, how it's perceived. Uh, but it's, you know, we're, because we're on the front lines here at Children's Hospital, we've seen children hospitalized, babies hospitalized with COVID, um, sick, uh, unnecessarily. I, I absolutely want those kids protected. So I would say, yes, you should do everything in your power to protect your child. You know, I think one of the things, Kate, is that um, as the children get younger, is that parents naturally, I mean, I would, it's the same with my kids, is that you get more protective. You have kind of more of a cocoon around them. And so that there's some data I think can be helpful for parents is that the uh, CDC just released uh, information a few weeks ago of looking at five to 11 year olds as far as the safety data. There's one uh, program called VAERS, which is a vaccine adverse event reporting system. There's also one that's called VSAFE that was put together by the CDC specifically for COVID-19. Um, that they have not seen any um, side effects that uh, did not show up in the clinical trials uh, that uh, basically was the same thing, is that there was pain at the injection site, they may have some fatigue, they may have a little bit of fever sometimes, but nothing other than that. And the other thing as far as with uh, the myocarditis, which has been an unusual event in 12 to 17 year olds, they basically haven't seen it in the five to 11 year olds. So uh, at that point, there were um, over 8 million vaccines that have been administered in the uh, five to 11 age group too. So if you haven't seen it, you're, it's very, very unlikely we're gonna see it. So I think that's really good news to be able to tell parents is that in that five to 11 age group, uh, we have not seen anything that we didn't see in the clinical trials. And the clinical trials, the side effects we saw were um, short-lived and really pretty mild. And that in the kids, the five to 11, they really did fine. Um, most of them didn't have anything. So that concern of myocarditis, I've heard come up many, many times. Um, will you tell us, remind us what it is? What is myocarditis and how, um, you know, how concerning is it? Is it treatable? Um, 
all of those good things. So I'll, I'll start and say that um, it sounds scary, right? Myocarditis mm -hmm. and inflammation of your heart sounds uh, very scary and ominous, but uh, it actually is very treatable and it's not unique to a vaccine issue. Children and people can get myocarditis from other viruses, other infections. Uh, so it's something that is familiar to us in medicine and in pediatrics. And I'll toss it to Bob on the uh, relationship to vaccines. And, and so the, the thing is that, as Dr. Manning was saying, as far as that um, you can get myocarditis from the, from the vaccine, but the rates are somewhere in a few per 100,000. Um, so maybe it's six, eight per 100,000. Um, that if you put it in context, the likelihood of getting hit by lightning is about one in 500,000 in Ohio. So it's not that much different from the chance of getting hit by lightning. Um, but then if you also look at the chance of getting myocarditis from the virus, mm -hmm. it's about seven times higher from getting uh, myocarditis from COVID than it is from the vaccine. And the other thing too is that the severity of the disease, the myocarditis with the virus-induced myocarditis is much more severe than with the uh, vaccine associated. And, and we have definitely seen that in our hospitalized patients. We have seen hospitalized patients with myocarditis from COVID infection. We have not seen, seen hospitalized patients with myocarditis from a vaccine. So with the, um, it, the submission from Pfizer to the FDA um, of the data to be reviewed for the EUA, what have we learned from this process that's happened multiple times before on how long it's likely to take? Do we have, I, I know I'm asking mm -hmm. you for your crystal ball again. I always do that to you. I apologize. Um, what does this mean as far as when it might be available? So the, uh, there's an advisory committee to the FDA called VRPEC, which is the vi uh, Vaccine Related Biological Products. And, that, uh, and so they review and they say, yes, we think it should be adopted or no, we don't think so. And then the FDA takes that under advisement. And so basically a day or two um, the, after the F, after VRPAC, uh, the FDA would likely make a decision. Um, and then it would go to ACIP, which is Advisory Committee for Immunization Practices, which is an advisory committee for the CDC. Uh, historically, what it's done for the adults, for the adolescents, for, then for the 12 to 15-year-olds and the 5 to 11-year-olds um, is that the ACIP met about one week later. Um, so if Verbeck meets the 15th of February, if, if everything goes through smoothly and everything, I could see the end of the month, uh, which is actually about three months faster than I thought it was going to be. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Thank you for breaking that down. It's all of the acronyms. We're getting used to them, <laughs> the, the Verbeck and yeah. all of that. I want to switch now to talking about variants for, for a quick second. So... I think everybody's gotten pretty used to hearing Omicron and even referring to it as its own thing. Um, now there's conversation about a subvariant of Omicron. And I guess I'm curious, will you help us understand why there might be a subvariant of a current variant instead of it being its own newly named variant? So this is what virologists get paid for as far as that uh, <laughs> they, they develop what's called a phylogeny tree. Okay. And so that it's how far off of that last branch that that virus is, is whether it's a variant or a, be a subvariant. So the more it diverges from that, if you think of the virus as the trunk of a tree and the branch is going out, every time you have a new branch going out, that's a new variant. 
And so then if you have a, like a side branch going off of that, that would be a subvariant of that variant. So that it's really, it's a semantics, is how much the virus has changed from that previous one. And this one that we seem to have now, what do we know about it so far? But what I would say as far as what we've seen is that variants on the whole have come through and lasted about four to six weeks and, that, uh, and then have gone. And, that, and so one of the things I was going to answer before that you, I was saying as far as who you had a couple questions in there is that you were saying about, about the vaccination and the herd immunity and the variants is that mm -hmm. where with that, a lot of that, what we're talking about with that is that if you're immunized, it's a lot less likely you're going to get infected. And so what happens if you're infected then the virus replicates. And every time it replicates, it has a chance to make a mistake. Okay. And when it makes a mistake and makes a new uh, DNA, or in this case, RNA chain, if it makes enough of those changes, that's a variant. So it's, a, it's or what we used to call a mutation. A variant seems to be the cooler term now they're using. But um, so that normally that's what happens is that a virus or bacteria gets in us and it replicates. And that RNA viruses is what's called they don't have a high fidelity, um, and that, so that they very easily make mistakes. And so that's why the flu virus changes so quickly. This is why COVID changes so quickly, because it's an RNA virus. And what that then does is it makes it that we have a lot of variants. If we don't have people getting infected, the virus can't multiply. If the virus can't multiply, it's not going to have mutants or variants. And so that's why, as far as the higher the vaccine rate we have, the less likely we're going to see new variants. Thank you. I'm glad we circled back to that because I, I was curious about um, why, you know, it's kind of that, that double um, protection when we get those higher vaccination rates is that we're reaching the community immunity as well as making it harder for right. the virus to mutate. Yeah, I mean, there was, a, there was another study that I was looking at recently. It's what they're called effectiveness studies. So efficacy is that when if we have a clinical trial and we know exactly when somebody comes in and gets their shots and when they get their blood drawn, everything is, is very, very prescribed. Effectiveness is like in the community. It's like you're supposed to get a vaccine now and 21 days later, but eh, you really got it 25 days later or you got it 32 days later or whatever. So they did an eff effectiveness trial of looking at early on as far as with the mRNA vaccine. What they found is that the one is that the effectiveness was basically the same as the efficacy, so over 95%, which is phenomenal, because a lot of times we don't see that with the effectiveness. But the other thing what they found is that the people that were vaccinated had a 40% lower amount of um, virus if they did get infected. So that if people were vaccinated and got infected, the amount of virus they found in their lows was much, much lower. And so that's another way that you decreasing the likelihood of passing it on to somebody because you have less virus to be passing on. That's really why vaccination is such an important uh, key to ending the pandemic. It's, it does protect you, keeps you from getting sick, keeps you from getting in the hospital, but it keeps you from infecting others and it keeps you from contributing to replication that contributes to variant development. So it does so many important things and it really saddens me and frustrates me when people may think this decision is just about them and their personal medical freedom and they're going to make their decision for themselves. I respect people's right to make decisions, but this, this decision actually does affect other people. It affects who you might infect. It affects our ability to, to get out of this pandemic. So Patty, you actually led me right into my next question, which was going to be the difference between pandemic and endemic. We've started hearing the, the term endemic 
And I am curious to understand the difference between the two and what we're, where we're headed. What's, what's going on? Where are we now? So um, endemic means y- y- you live there. It's, so it's there. Um, so there's kind of three levels. There'd be endemic, and then there's epidemic, and then there's a pandemic. And so epidemic means there's an outbreak. And then a pandemic is a epidemic on steroids. Okay, so there's a huge epidemic is a pandemic. So pan is all, um, so that it's throughout the world is a pandemic. Um, but endemic means then it's it's become part of our normal um, milieu, part of our environment. And so what that could mean then is that we may need, uh, like we need a flu shot every year. It may be that. Uh, people be working on a combined COVID and flu shot is that you get uh, that every year. We don't know yet, but I mean, that's one of the things that could happen as far as if a virus gets endemic. It means that you're going to see disease, you're going to see hot spots, you're going to see outbreaks here and there, but you're not going to see the huge brush fires like we've been seeing. Do you think that's where we're headed? It hasn't gone away yet. I mean, I, what I was hoping as far as this, so the name for this is sars covid 2 um, and SARS is Severe Acute Respiratory Disease Syndrome, which we saw a number of years ago that came out of Hong Kong and then um, went, there was a big outbreak in Toronto, it basically closed Toronto down and then it just went away. Uh, within months it was gone. Nobody really understood that and it just gone. And people were hoping that was gonna be the same thing with uh, coronavirus, unfortunately that's not what happened and it really has been able to uh, take hold and stay. So. If it does become endemic, it's not the worst of things. I mean, you know, it doesn't mean that, oh, we'll never get out of this. It just means that it could be that it's a, it's a virus that we're gonna have to deal with on a yearly basis, or like I said, we may need to have more boosters for the uh, vaccine. So because we are still in a pandemic, um, I wanna talk for just a second about safety measures because fewer and fewer people seem interested in taking precautions like as the pandemic wears on. Um, So in what situations are the safety measures still most important? You know, it's, I have great uh, sympathy for folks who are tired of this because I'm, you know, would count myself as one of those people (laughs) in some ways. Um, But uh, I also recognize the importance of, of making wise decisions and staying safe while disease burden is still so high in our region. Where you should be extra thoughtful in large groups of people that you don't know. You don't know their vaccination status. You don't know if they have symptoms. You don't know if they practice safe practices. So, you know, unfortunately right now we're in a, in a bit of a, um, a stir in our community because we have things to be excited about and people are getting together around games and activities. Um, but if you're in a large crowd of people, um, it really behooves you to, to wear a mask and just take some extra precautions. If you're going to be in a large group of people and eating, that's another really high-risk activity. We say that all the time, that eating in large groups um, is probably one of the highest-risk activities. And so how should families be thinking about the relationship between being fully vaccinated and taking precautions? And this is, um, this is coming directly from my nine-year-old who is fully vaccinated and fights me every time I ask him to put on a mask when we're going someplace. Um, But I'm fully vaccinated, mom. Um, So I just, any words of advice for families who are in that space but still wanna be careful? 
Uh, well, for, fortunately, it sounds like your nine-year-old is behaving like many typical nine-year-olds and just being uh, <laughs> somewhat <laughs> resistant to, to direction. But um, I, my first response to that question is that, well, I know you're vaccinated, but I don't know about the other people that we're going to be around. And that's why I need you to mask, because your vaccination protects you and it, and it helps you protect other people. But if they're not vaccinated, you're still at risk. And so you need... Uh, we've talked all along in this uh, pandemic about the, the need for a bundle of activities, not just there isn't one single action that's going to protect you fully. So, I mean, I wish the vaccine was a magic shield that protected you from everything, but it doesn't. Uh, it works best with other actions like masking, like distancing, like knowing who you're with and, and their vaccination status. And so I, I think to go along with that, though, is go back to circling where I started with is that I'm not, I'm just trying to say factual. I'm not trying to point fingers or anything like that, but we do have a way forward. And, and that if, if you look at the numbers in the hospital now or the numbers in the morgue and that, that uh, um, it's 20 to one in the unvaccinated to vaccinated. And so uh, the way that we're gonna get out of this, the way that your nine year old is gonna, I mean, he's, make, he's answering, asking a good question. I mean, I did everything I'm supposed to do and, and everything's the same. Um, that I think that what he could do is maybe try to help encourage his buds to say, you know, to get vaccinated too, because we all want this to be minimized, uh, the, the risk of people getting infected. You know, I, I think at some point it's gonna be where we're gonna get a high enough vaccination rate that if we do make it into an endemic disease that we will relax some of the um, things. Because you have to, I mean, it. A lot of what we're having now is very similar in my mind to what happened around 9-11 is you get fatigued, is that emotionally you get fatigued. And it's just very, very difficult to get people to continue being at that high level of awareness is that their, their minds are just tired and that they want to go back to normal. They want to make believe these things don't exist anymore. And unfortunately, that puts you at risk again. And so um, it's trying to find that balance is that as Dr. Manning said, you know, you know how your vaccine is, you're not sure about others. If you can be sure about the other people, okay, maybe you can be a little more relaxed as far as with smaller groups and this kind of thing. So that um, I'm happy that the, uh, the Bengals are going to Super Bowl. And if you're going to go down to Paul Brown Stadium and be there, I would say it'd be good to have a, a mask with you um, to be trying to keep everybody safe. Um, but I, I don't see this as being a forever kind of thing. Um, we are making progress, and I know it's tiring, and I know people are so over this, uh, myself included, um, but it really is important to keep pressing on. I do think we're, we've learned a lot in the past two years, and we are learning that actually for our, our um, interventions to be more effective, we probably have to be better about unwinding them when we can. We used to be worried about stopping and starting things, like, mm -hmm. is, oh my gosh, people won't want to do it again once we've stopped it. Um, but I think we've recognized that it will have more impact um, if we've taken a break and said, okay, you can, you know, like we did last summer, we actually had a tiny bit of a break. Uh, and at least here on our campus, having to wind some things back up and implement some things that we had unwound uh, went better than I thought. So I, I think we have to learn how to kind of let things um, ebb and flow as we move through this um, so that people don't stay as fatigued as they are. I think fatigue is very much a theme. I, it's we're feeling it everywhere. Um, and I know that some schools that had mask mandates have rolled those back, um, perhaps a little prematurely, but um, er, made them 
highly recommended instead of instead of required. Um, but I think it's just there's so much fatigue over it. Mm-hmm. I'm, so one of the things is that one of the reasons I like being a pediatrician is because kids are so malleable and kids are so adaptable. Mm-hmm. And I had a uh, a two year old I was seeing in. Our, one of our vaccine visits the other day, and he had his mask on. And I said, "Oh, so you can put your mask on?" He goes, puts it on like that, and smiles, and it's like, a, "This is a two-year-old. Mm-hmm. He was okay with it. His oxygen levels didn't drop. Uh, that uh, he could still, you know. And that this is one of the things that Dr. Manning might be able to expound on a little bit too. Is where people were worried as far as that kids can't pick up on um, emotions." Um, but they really showed that they can. They can still recognize when somebody's mad or somebody's happy or something, even when they have a mask on. And so the kids, the kids are going to follow what we say. Mm-hmm. If if we say this is the dumbest thing I've ever seen, well, that's what the kids are going to hear, and and that's what they're going to do. Versus, you know what? I know this is hard, but this is why it's important, and this is how it works. The kids pick up on that, and they're okay, and they'll adapt to it. And they mean they'll be like your nine-year-old and say. I really have to do this. But we say, yes, you know, it's important to do and that they stay with it. So, I mean, oh, kids are resilient and kids, um, they have handled this better than we have, I think. And even though they have paid, as we've said many times, a very unique price, I I do think I want to speak to that point about masking because it it gets, uh, this gets misrepresented a lot that, that wearing masks has some effect on the mental health of children or the development of children or children who see you know, young children who see people in masks for two years, it's going to affect their development. It's just simply not true. And I say that as a developmental pediatrician. When we look at the ability to read emotional states, the tests that we use to understand somebody's understanding of an emotional state is just looking at eyes. It's not looking at them, their mouth or their nose. It's just reading their eyes. And so in some ways, I, it, you could even argue, and this might be a stretch, but I'm going to make it, you could argue that it strengthens a child's ability to read emotional states because they're focused on your eyes, and that's what conveys emotion more than, than anything. Um, it's just simply not true that masks have damaged kids or have hurt their mental health. It's absolutely not true. You have both expertly answered all of the questions that I had. Um, talking about things that are not true, is there anything, any other myths that we have heard going around recently that would be worth debunking before we wrap up? I do want to speak to the decision for schools to, to take masking um, recommendations down. I do think it's premature. The CDC set um, some parameters uh, way back when about when they felt indoor masking was safe to unwind or take down, and that was at 50 cases per 100,000. We're not there yet. We're still at several hundred, if not, we're probably in the five to 600 cases per 100,000 in our region right now. Um, So I think it's a little early for schools. I I hope that we don't see an impact on kids from that. Um, But having said that, I. I actually feel more optimistic than I felt in a long time, um, and that's that's a good thing. So you know that the the CDC does a lot of um, epidemiology studies, following things along and see how interventions work. And so there was reports from two different school districts: one uh, large school district in Los Angeles, another large school district in Illinois, and where they had what they called mask and stay. And so that if the child was exposed, but they're asymptomatic of staying in school. Mm -hmm. And that what they found in Los Angeles, they had zero secondary cases, zero, um, if the kids wore a mask. If they, um, 
And then in the Illinois, they had 0.1, they had 1%. But the difference between those two is in Illinois, they still allowed the kids to ride the bus too, and that they had the extracurricular activities, including sports. So even with that, that they had to have the mask on, except for those times, um, they still had incredibly low. So the, the masks do help. Um, masks, to me, are a way that you can decrease potentially the quarantines as far as that you're allowed to have kids stay in school as far as that. Uh, and like I said, the kids just, you know, they put pictures on the ma masks and stuff like that. Or they have their big fangs and stuff like that. And, and they're okay with it. Um, so you were asking one other thing, though, as as, and, and to me, this is as far as with rumors. And so this is one of the things is that rumors fascinate me because and what it is is that there just has to be a modicum of truth, just a little bit of truth, and then the gravitas of who's saying it, and the, and the more times they say it, it starts to stick. So one of the new ones is that um, COVID-19 vaccines uh, alter your menstrual cycles. So the truth is adolescent females have a very high rate of menstrual irregularities. That's just normal. So if you give somebody as a background rate of having high menstrual irregularities, you can give them a vaccine, well, of course it's gonna be associated with it, mm -hmm. but it doesn't mean it causes it. And so that um, the, the rumors that I've seen that people have been doing that seem to really resonate the most have been the ones about reproductivity. Um, those are the seems to be really worrying the people the most, that it's gonna make you sterile, um, that it's gonna have irregular periods. None of them are true, um, but those are the ones that really seem to be sticking. As usual, you two are fantastic. Thank you so much for these updates. Any closing thoughts? Hang in there. If you look at, compared to where we were two years ago, we're so far better than that. And if you look at where we were compared to a year ago, we're way ahead of that. So while we're not to the end yet, we're getting closer. We continue to get better. And I think you can't measure in hours and days, but if you're looking at weeks or in months that um, we've had significant improvement and that, uh, and we know the way to get to the finish line. Thank you for that. That's a great way for us to close this out. You've been listening to the Young and Healthy Podcast. Thanks so much. We'll see you next time. This episode of Young and Healthy was recorded on February 2nd, 2022. The content of this podcast is for informational and educational purposes only. Our theme music was created by Stephen Grieco. And the Talented Symphony Pits produced this episode and every other one as well. Thank you, Symphony. Follow Cincinnati Children's on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter.